Welcome to the Historias Podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. The slave trade is well known to have been the most horrifying feature of the transatlantic trade networks that began in the 16th century. Listeners may be surprised to learn that slave ships continued to sail to the Spanish colony of Cuba all the way up until the 1860s. To trace the unique path that Spain took to abolish this trade, I'm joined by Jesus San Jorge, a lecturer in Hispanic and Latin American studies at Cardiff University in Wales, and author of the book In the Blood of Our Brothers, Abolitionism and the End of the Slave Trade in Spain's Atlantic Empire, 1800 to 1870, out just last year with University of Alabama Press. I'm also happy to say that this is our first in-person recording in almost two years now. We are recording at the annual meeting of the American Historical Association in New Orleans, Louisiana. So, Jesus, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So, first of all, can you give us a sense of the nature of the slave trade in the Spanish Americas at the time that we usually think of as its height, the 18th century? How many enslaved people were coming to the Spanish Americas? Where were they going and why? So, the slave trade starts as part of the process of the conquest and colonization of the Americas. So. Um, the earliest example of slave vessels or enslaved people crossing the Atlantic to the, the new Spanish territories in the Americas, the territories in the Americas that were being conquered and colonized, goes back to the various early stages of, of the conquest itself. There are two major moments in the history of the slave trade in the Atlantic world. Historians usually refer to them as the, the first slavery and the second slavery. The, the first one tends to refer to the the period of the uh, 16th and 17th centuries. And this is a very fascinating period. It's, it's not one that I discuss in, in the book, but it's a period in which the, the slave trade has a very important impact, demographically speaking, culturally, politically speaking, in these new colonial spaces in, in, in the Spanish territories in the Americas. But when we look at the data, it, it kind of like looks as if it was not a very important number of enslaved people. But because the demographic reality of these new enclaves in most cases, because we're talking about port cities like Cartagena de Indias, La Habana, Santiago in, in, in Cuba, Panama in the, in the Pacific coast, all these places had an incredibly small population. So this constant influx of, of enslaved people from Africa is really transforming these societies into black societies in, in, in most cases. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the, the first slavery. That's the slavery of, uh, the, that is linked to the process of conquest and colonization uh, of the Caribbean, but also other parts of, of, of the Americas. Then the slave trade, at the same time that the, um, the union of the, of the crowns of Castile and Portugal, you know, the, the so-called Iberian Union, once that process ends and Portugal regains its independence as, a, as an independent nation, the networks that were being used to introduce enslaved people to the Americas kind of like stop. And, and, and for a long period of time, most of the enslaved people who came to the Spanish territories in the Americas were actually coming from other uh, colonial territories in the Caribbean and in the Americas. So think of Barbados, Jamaica, uh, the, the Dutch Guyana and so on. These were the places where 
the first the slaves were first landing and then from there they were being introduced into other uh, territories in, in the Spanish territories mm -hmm. we didn't really know much about this and the the work of the of the group of David Eltis and others working on the, 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 the slave trade database slave voyages they've done a fantastic job recently adding a second set of data that is called the intra America database so we, we didn't really know how these cities kept such a steady uh, enslaved population without the influx of new enslaved people. Now we know it's because they were coming from other colonies, from other European colonies in the Americas. So that's the, the, the first moment and there is this like kind of like a uh, big gap in the number of enslaved people coming directly from Africa, from West Africa to the Spanish Caribbean and to other parts of, of the Spanish Americas. And then we have, almost right at the beginning of the 19th century, perhaps you know the last decade of the 18th century, we see the so-called liberalization of the slave trade. The, the Spanish monarchs, uh, as part of what is called the, the Bourbon reforms, they authorize anyone with a vessel to go to Africa and bring enslaved people to any Spanish port. So that process of liberalization of the trade really has a very uh, immediate impact in the number of enslaved people that were introduced directly, not from other Caribbean colonies, not from other European enclaves in the Caribbean, to the Spanish colonies. Um, but what is very unique about the Spanish case is that that uh, initial boom in the number of people that were being introduced, the number of Africans were being introduced, coincides with the beginning of the abolitionist campaigns in Britain and the United States. So. Britain abolishes the slave trade in its dominions in 1807 and not only that, they are going to start an international campaign investing uh, a lot of money, a lot of lives and a lot of uh, military and diplomatic efforts mm -hmm. in convincing, and that's a nice way, of, nice way of putting it, forcing, would be more accurate, other European nations to adopt the same, the same legislation and to abolish the slave trade. Right. And in the case of the Spanish Empire, that creates that uh, there is an international agreement in 1817 between the British and the Spaniards that establishes that no new slaves were going to be introduced after 1820. Mm -hmm. The reality is very different. The, the biggest number of enslaved people are introduced in the 30s, 40s and 50s. So all that big slave trade is actually illegal slave trade. And that's what makes the Spanish case very unique. Because most of the slave trade happens in the 19th century, when the, all the other colonies in the Caribbean were not introducing the slaves anymore. And it happens during the illegal period. So all that traffic was illegal slave trade. Mm -hmm. The other territory in the Americas that operates similarly to, the, to Cuba, to the Spanish Caribbean, is Brazil, which follows a very similar a very similar path. What we see in the 19th century is also an explosion in the number of enslaved people that are, are being introduced in the Carib in in Brazil, and also in the case of Brazil, that trade is officially considered illegal, but tolerated, promoted by the same authorities that were signing those treaties. Right. But why is it that you actually see this increase in the 19th century when 
it's actually illegal. And uh, it seems to me at that period in Spain, mo most of them are going to Cuba, right? So, so why does Cuba really become the focus in that period? So the major event that transforms the politics of the Caribbean forever is the Haitian Revolution. In 1791, what it starts as a slave revolt ends up creating the first black republic in the Americas, the first independent black republic in the Americas. And that has two effects. One is an uh, international effort to isolate uh, the former Spanish and French island of Saint-Domingue and, and to kind of like prevent other colonialist spaces from doing the same, that the enslaved people of, and enslaved and non-enslaved but black and mulatto population of, of Haiti have done uh, in the revolution. The, the, there is a real panic mm -hmm. across the region uh, about the sole idea of something similar, a second Haiti, they, they usually call it, happening anywhere else. Jamaica, Barbados, Cuba, or Cartagena de Indias, it doesn't matter. Anywhere was like, uh, could have been the scenario of something like that. So the first attempt, the first thing that they do, all European powers is try to internationally isolate Haiti. The only one that doesn't, you know, that kind of like tries to establish a collaboration with them is uh, Simon Bolivar, who is going to travel there and who is going to travel with a very strong political and diplomatic relations with them. Um, but that's the exception and it's part of its own revolutionary efforts against the Spanish Empire. Mm -hmm. But then the second effect that he has is that uh, you have a lot of French planters who were developing some of the most advanced technologies for the production of sugar in Saint-Domingue, in Haiti, who go into exile. Some of them come here to New Orleans, to Louisiana, and they establish their, their plantations here, but a very important number of them go to Cuba and start plantations in Cuba. It's very interesting because if you look at the dates, this is the same period in which, uh, you know, France and Spain have a very complicated relationship. They go from being allies to, you know, being invaded by Napoleon in 1808. But still, when it comes to how the Cuban authorities welcome these rich white planters is very consistent. Like, they, they don't really never see them as enemies. There is an early sense that, you know, it's a matter of a, of a race war. So the whites should be welcome because they are running away from, from uh, a black revolution. So these French planters that established in, in across the, the, the Caribbean region, but crucially in some parts of Cuba, they are going to bring with them some new technologies that are going to be groundbreaking at the time that have to do with a, a much more efficient way of producing sugar. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that Haiti was a major sugar producer and the revolution ends that production, basically because the former enslaved people don't want to work in the sugarcane plantations anymore. They want to you know, have a happy life and, and that's very difficult when you are expect to cut sugarcane uh, for 10 or 12 hours a day. Right. So that collapse of the sugar economy in Haiti creates the perfect market conditions for Cuba to take the lead. And you have the investment, you have the knowledge that is brought by these uh, white planters, and you also have the market opportunity. And Cuba started investing and transforming its economy into a plantation-based sugar production economy. I think what's interesting is that at the same time that you have Cuba really taking off as this center for, for sugar production and um, 
the, you know, the slavery that went with it, you have Britain starting to make this push to end the slave trade. But was there also a movement to end the slave trade inside Spain at that time? I'm, I'm, I'm very careful in the book to use the word movement, because I think the idea of movement implies a lot of things that we don't see in Spain. And one thing that a lot of historians of slavery, particularly those working in, in the Anglophone academia, have always tried to do is kind of like use the same lenses that they apply to study the British abolition of the slave trade or the uh, abolitionist movement in, in, in the United States. Kind of like applying the same lens to the Spanish and they say like, well, no, you know, there was no Spanish anti-slavery movement, there was no Spanish anti-slavery ideas. And I, I try to provide a more kind of like reasonable or nuanced approach to, to in my book. I try to say that it's, it's not possible to talk about a movement in the sense that we don't have, you know, kind of like the, the institutions that you, you will imagine from a movement or the associations, the groups cooperating, working together towards a common goal. We don't have that. Mm -hmm. But what we have is people who are being receptive to these ideas that are clearly circulating that are being well known in, in a lot of places in, in Spain, not just in Madrid and Barcelona, but in places like Zaragoza and Oviedo. You know, you have this very traditional 18th century sociedades de amigos, like, you know, societies of, of, of friends who are, you know, who gather to talk about and discuss the latest economic theories or philosophy or biology, whatever it was. And these people start talking about the slave trade and slavery and they are very interested in what's happening in the UK and they are very interested to know uh, what is going to be the effects in the British economy of the abolition and I think that the general consensus among them is that abolition slave trade is a bad, is bad business like it, they don't see economic reasons for it but what the British anti-slavery movement is very successful in doing is that they don't present it as an economic uh, victory, they think is a moral victory, mm -hmm. an ethical victory. That's why the role of the Quakers is so central in, in, in the British anti-slavery movement. What I say in the book is that all those discussions, arguments, they were definitely happening before the beginning of the 19th century. People were talking, people in Spain were talking about uh, the slave trade, they were talking about abolitionism. But all those ideas don't come into real political action until the establishment of the Cortes of Cadiz. And it is in that first Spanish parliament, in that first Spanish National Assembly, if you want, mm -hmm. where those ideas that were definitely circulating before then find the place to become policy, or at least some people are going to attempt to turn those debates into political action. Because that was the moment when you have Spain's first constitution, right? And the liberals thinkers who were influenced by the Enlightenment first are able to have some political power during the Napoleonic Wars. Mm -hmm. um, 1812, given that kind of developing liberal ideology at that time, why was there an interest in abolishing the slave trade? It is a fascinating moment in Spanish history because you go at the same time that Spain is being invaded by Napoleonic forces and of course some of the most radical liberals in Spain you know, not long, not long before, thought of Napoleon as a as a very. They they saw him as a, as a fantastic leader, as someone who was advancing and promoting the ideas of the Enlightenment. And of course, as it happened with other important thinkers and uh, across Europe, I'm thinking of 
the, the music composer Beethoven, uh, they change their mind and they start, they start thinking of Napoleon as, as a tyrant. That happens in Spain as well, and you clearly have two main sectors within the so-called, you know, the, the liberal sectors in Spain. You have those that are going to be labeled as afrancesados, who are going to collaborate with the with the French, and they are, in some cases, they're going to do that in very good faith because they really think that, you know, Napoleon is going to bring important and good transformations for for a very traditional conservative country. But then you have this other group of intellectuals headed by people like Jovellanos in the north of Spain who are going to organize a resistance against the invasion. And they are going to do that by organizing the first parliament in the history of Spain with the support, the military support of the British, a very significant number of politicians, activists, but also artisans, soldiers, bullfighters, <laughs> some of them gather in the city of Cadiz, in the very, very south of the Spanish peninsula, as far as they can, as, as far as they go as far as they can from, from, the, from the battlefront, from the, from the French lines, and they start discussing a constitution, which is remarkable. In this context, in the, in the context of a, of a very brutal war that they were losing for most of the, of the period, they decide that they are representing the nation in the name of the king and that they are going to draft a constitution. And it's going to become one of the most radically advanced, progressive constitutions ever made in the world. So it's a remarkable thing. And it's in this context that the issue of the slave trade starts to be discussed. Uh, and it's, it's possible that some of these liberal politicians were already talking about it. I'm not arguing against that. But it's crucial that it is the British representative in Cadiz who goes to the leader of the liberal faction in that parliament, Agustin de Arguelles, and goes to him and, and says, we want to pursue the abolition of the slave trade, can you help us with this? And Arguelles, in this secret negotiation with them, says, like, I only ask for one thing, I want this to be presented as our national effort. I want, I want to, you know, to capitalize this because I think this is something that we are going to be proud of as a, as a nation. Um, so wait, don't make this public, let me speak to my people, let me go to the courts and let me present the, my proposal for abolition. And he does something that is incredibly clever in political terms because he brings together a double motion to abolish torture and to abolish the slave trade. So by bringing them together, and because he knew that he had the votes for the abolition of torture, he thought that it was going to make the abolition of the slave trade a lot easier. The reality was very different though. The position of those representing the slave traders and planters was very important in Cadiz. Think of Cadiz as a city that is very closely linked to, uh, to merchants in the Atlantic world. And they, they, our way is suddenly realized that it's an issue that was going to be a lot more complicated. And his priority at this point is, of course, to pass the constitution itself, the, the, the core text. Mm -hmm. And the planters are not radically anti-liberal, quite the opposite. They are among the most kind of like, in, in economic terms, the most liberal people. But they think of enslaved people as property. And property rights is the big issue of the constitution. So in the end, it all comes down to a negotiation and Arguelles decides that he's going to prioritize mm, 
pushing the constitution through, getting that legislation, that very important text through, but leaving the abolition of the slave trade out. Mm -hmm. So it never goes through and the abolition didn't take place in, in 1812. Right, but but here we see the the first seeds um, of an attempt to do so. So let's take a short pause, and then we'll continue to trace uh, these efforts to end the slave trade in Spain through the 19th century. So as you mentioned before, the slave trade um, actually was abolished despite the decision of the liberals not to do it in a few years later in 1817, but it was actually by the absolutist regime of uh, Fernando VII, Ferdinand VII. So how and why did this occur? So in 1816, the project of the, of the Cortes, the constitution of 1812, uh, collapses. Ferdinand VII returns to the throne and he starts a brutal political repression against everything that sounded and looked liberal. Everyone who was related to that constitution gets either expelled, imprisoned or forced into exile. And Arguelles is one of them. He's, he's put in prison first in, in, in a Spanish enclave in North Africa and later on in Mallorca. So absolutism comes back in full force. But this is the context of the the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars and for Britain there is no appetite for you know kind of like changing that at, at least they don't see that as, a, as an immediate possibility so they decide to collaborate with Ferdinand VII also Ferdinand has the political support of other big European allies you know the Russians for example are going to be very keen to provide military support and political support to, to, to Ferdinand when he comes back but one thing that the British do, and they are very clear from the beginning, right from when he comes back and, you know, through Valencia, is that we want to talk about, they want to talk about the issue of the slave trade. They want to, they, they are not ready to give up. They see the attempt in Cadiz uh, as a diplomatic failure. They, 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 going back to what happened, they think they should have been more forceful and, and perhaps not let our ways uh, lead that effort, but actually for them to, to, to have a much more clear policy on that. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to Fernando, they say like, well, let's do, you know, classic 19th century diplomacy. We're, we need a peace treaty with Spain, so let's add uh, an article in that agreement that will later be called the Treaty of Madrid, that is specifically established that the king will promise to abolish the slave trade. And it's very interesting because Fernando says yes, and as many things that he lied about in his life, he says that, you know, concurring in, in, the, in the sentiment with his Britannic majesty that the abolition of the slave trade is very important and slavery itself is horrible, I will find a way to look into this, basically, that's what he says. So what it means in bureaucratic terms is that he's going to ask the two advisory committees or the two advisory institutions of the Crown, the, the, the Supreme Council and the Council of the Indies, to write a report answering the question, should Spain abolish the slave trade or not? And what, were, what are the consequences of that? The Supreme Council is very clear, the abolition of the slave trade will be disastrous for our economy or an industry, and they, they recommend not to do it. But surprisingly, and this is absolutely remarkable, the Council of the Indies 
says yes. The majority of the councillors says yes. And what is even more remarkable is that in that report, they are going to use an expression that Arguelles himself had used in the parliamentary debates of the Courts of Cadiz, and which is the, the, the name of the book. Arguelles says, trading in the blood of our brothers is horrendous, atrocious and inhumane. And the Council of Indies repeats that same idea, saying that trading in the blood of our fellow creatures uh, is, is abominable. So the idea of the brothers as a very powerful uh, rhetorical element becomes kind of like a very important theme in the book, but also, I think, for, for the people who are talking about abolitionism. And what is very important to, to, to have in mind is that who creates that that rhetorical figure is Wilberforce. Wilberforce, in his letter to the, to the constituents of Yorkshire, he uses the idea of slaves as brothers. And that's going to be like a major, major slogan for the anti-slavery movement in Britain. So it's remarkable that an absolutist institution established, re-established only a few months after a brutal political repression is using the same language of the leader of the movement that is now being repressed. I think that's that's crazy. Yeah. And also the other thing that is crazy is that even before the king saw that report from the Council of Indies, the British ambassador in Madrid already had a copy translated into English. So it's clear that the British were playing or advising or collaborating, whatever you're going to call them, with some of these members of the Council of the Indies. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that Ferdinand VII finds himself in a very difficult position. The political situation kind of like led him to agree with the British an international treaty in 1817 that establishes that by 1820 every Spanish citizen will not be involved in the slave trade and no new enslaved people should arrive, should land to any Spanish possessions in the Atlantic world. Mm -hmm. And that is supposedly the first and perhaps the most important, abolition of the slave trade in the Spanish Empire. But it means nothing. Right, and, and that's what I wanted to ask you about, because as you mentioned before, uh, even though the slave trade is now illegal, you actually see an increase in it in, in the subsequent decades. Um, so how did that happen? Well, what, what happens is that by the time that the slave trade is abolished in 1820, the slave trade had become a fundamental cornerstone of the Cuban economy. The plantation economy has boomed in Havana. Cuba is gradually becoming, and it will a few years later, become the biggest sugar producer in the world. And the prices of sugar are also booming. So, you know, for merchants inside and outside the island, they are making economic decisions when it comes to assuming or not assuming the risk. And with that situation, with that booming economy and the prices of enslaved people relatively uh, low, the answer is very clear. Mm -hmm. The slave trade will continue in the eyes of, of slave traders and slave owners. What they are not sure at that point, and you see that hesitation a lot uh, among slave traders and planters in Cuba, is like, what is the Spanish government going to do? Are they, are going, are they really going to enforce this treaty? Are they really going to, to force us to stop buying new enslaved people? Uh, and that creates, very, it's very interesting in, in, in 1819, a great rush. So a lot of planters are going to buy it because they think that the slave trade might end that the Spanish authorities might enforce the law, so they are buying 
you know, a lot more that they really need for their plantations in the short term. But the reality is that the Spanish authorities have no intention of enforcing that same legislation. There is a, a Spanish say that you know historians love to repeat when, when it comes to the legislation of, of, of the Americas that you know las, las leyes uh, cambian al cruzar el Atlántico. So laws change when they cross the Atlantic. Laws are interpreted very differently from Madrid uh, and from Havana. And basically what happens is that First, the colonial authorities say very openly that enforcing the law is impossible. It cannot be done because the need for new enslaved people is so huge. The money involved in the business is so big that they simply don't have the power to stop it. That's what they argue. Mm -hmm. And also in Madrid, what they start saying is that more and more Cuban people are saying, well, if you don't let us continue our revolution, our industrial revolution, this booming economy, we might start looking at other options. Because let's not forget the wars of independence in, in, in mainland Latin America are taking place and the possibility of an independent Cuba is, 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 is not far away from anybody's mind. Mm -hmm. But also the possibility of a British Cuba or even an American Cuba. So the Cuban planters are very, very, very well aware of their power um, and they are letting the Spanish authorities know that if they cut their business, they might become uh, not so loyal to the crown. I see. Now, how about the liberal side of the story, some of whom, as we mentioned in the previous segment, uh, actually pushed for the abolition of the slave trade um, during that Cortes of uh, 1812. Did they continue to push for its real abolition uh, in, as we go into the mid-19th century? I think that is very important and something that I do um, kind of like one of the main goals of the book is to dissociate the idea of liberalism and abolitionism. Like I think that when we look at the British abolition of the slave trade or the American one there is a very clear alignment between the most progressive political actors and their activism in favor of abolishing the slave trade or abolition of slavery. That is not the case in Spain. If we think of liberalism as a political theory and fundamentally an economic theory that promotes free trade, open markets, uh, competition, some of the most liberal people were the slave traders and the slave owners in Cuba. These are the people that are advocating for the most radical economic transformations. These are the ones that are arguing time and time again for opening new markets, for free ports, for free trade. The key thing here is that we need to understand that for them, enslaved people are property. Mm -hmm. And for them, the, 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 the right for private property is the cornerstone of their ideological universe. So what we have is that when, the, when Ferdinand VII died in 1835, a new courtesar, a new parliament is reestablished, and there is two candidates for succeeding Ferdinand VII. On the one hand, you have his brother Charles Carlos, and on the other half, you have on the other hand, you have his underage daughter, uh, which will later become uh, Isabel II, Isabel II. And Carlos has the uh, support of conservative sectors, uh, significant parts of the Catholic Church, 
the international allies of Carlos are the Austria and Russia, for the uh, candidate Isabella, the mixture is a lot more progressive, if you want. It's much more liberal. You have the, she has the backing of Britain. But a lot of those uh, liberals who have contributed to the Cadiz constitution, who have participated in the liberal triennium, and who had been in exile or in prison, now return to Spain to collaborate with this new potential queen for, to support her candidacy uh, and to support her in this civil war. Mm -hmm. And the question is, will the slave trade become part of that political program? Will Isabel II become an anti-slave trade campaigner? The answer is no. Because what happens in the 1830s is that the Spanish Empire has collapsed. There are only three remaining colonies loyal to the, to the Spanish monarchy, to the crown, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. And Cuba is truly the only significant one in economic terms. If for this community of liberals, for the majority of these thinkers, the priority has to be preserving a Spanish Cuba, maintaining the control over this very important colony. And they understand, and the planters and the slave traders and the slave owners are very clear about this, that Cuba will not be Spanish unless the slave trade continues to be tolerated. And for the Spanish people, the preservation of the empire is much more important than anything else. Mm -hmm. And of course, more important than the slave trade. But how did these um, liberals who have this change of heart essentially justify that when they were previously speaking in these moral terms, speaking of the blood of our brothers, for instance, you mentioned, um, how do they justify this shift? A character that really encapsulates this very well is the figure of Agustin de Arguelles, who had been this early advocate for the abolition of the slave trade in Cadiz, and now returns to Spain in 1836, you know, as he's going to become the president of this new National Assembly. He's going to be the Speaker of the House, if you use the British terminology. He's a very well-respected political leader. He was the, the author of the Cadiz Constitution. So when he comes back, you know, the question is like, what is he going to say about the slave trade? He's, he kind of like summarizes that in a, in a letter that he sends to a friend before he's going to travel to Madrid. And he says, those philanthropic ideas that I once uh, supported no longer make sense. And, the main, and he says, like, the main reason why I changed my mind about him is because of the betrayal of the Spanish Americans, the betrayal that, you know, the fact that they were ready to create a, a, a constitution that will, con that will bring both sides of the empire, both sides of the Atlantic as part of a single community of citizens. Mm -hmm. And instead they use those liberties to fight for independence, to, to, to break away from, 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 from the Spanish monarchy. And he sees that, and he takes that very personally. He, he sees that as a, as a personal betrayal. It's, it's, and it's reasonable to think that some of the people that are now leading the revolutionary efforts in Colombia, in Venezuela, they were personal friends of him. So, so yeah, it, it must have felt like, you know, the constitutional pro project that he advocated for in 1812 collapsed. But not only that, it was the, the, the beginning of the collapse of the empire itself. Mm -hmm. So when he comes back, he says, like, look, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about the slave trade. I don't care about the slave trade. And he introduces one element that is going to become quite central to the politics of the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, which is the idea of the racial war. 
in all in this period in these 20 years from Cadiz what has changed in Cuba is that now almost 60% of the population is black and he's going to say in the Cortes of 1836 that what is happening in Cuba is that there is a, a potential racial war between the blacks and the whites and that he has a very clear idea of what his size is his side is and mm -hmm. he's in the side of the whites and if the slave trade has to continue so be it but what we need to make sure is that the black population is repressed and controlled so that's the new narrative so that's why you know the idea of liberalism sometimes becomes so uh, impractical when, when, when looking at these questions because Isar Way is not a liberal politician in 1830s of course he is he's the leader of the liberal party in Spain but the question is is liberalism incompatible with slavery absolutely not and we see that also here in the United States like you see very relevant what we will consider liberal political figures who in the south of the United States are advocating for for the need of slavery so mm -hmm. I, I think that's why the, the term liberalism is something that I discuss in the book uh, and I pay a lot of attention to it uh, great well let's take another pause here and then we'll talk about how the slave trade finally did end in Spain so as we come into this third segment we see the slave trade to Cuba um, continuing through the 19th century and even increasing but at the same time the British are continually putting pressure on Spain to actually end this trade um, so how did the British put that pressure on Spain and what effects did their efforts have yeah in in the 1840s and 50s the the, the pressure of the British authorities is huge like, it, it gets to the point that in some moments there is a real risk of um, the interruption of diplomatic relations between Spain and Britain because of the slave trade. There's a short period uh, that it actually happens, like uh, almost a year in which this, the Spanish and the British interrupt diplomatic relations. There is other things going on as well in during that period, but the slave trade is definitely part of that very difficult conversation that both both states are are having with each other um, the British are not only s sounding more aggressive but they are also showing to Spain that they can be very aggressive and and the example for that is Brazil in in the case of Brazil the British are not only going to you know operate within the diplomatic channels but they are also going to bombard their ports they are going to attack they are going to conduct military expeditions inland to try to stop slave traders and that's going to really put the spaniards in position of of, of warning and and they are going to see that something very similar can can happen to them but the spanish are also going to use the international political climate in their advantage and this is what i call in the book the balancing act strategy because what they are saying is that uh, to the British, be careful how much pressure you put on us and how much you demand from us a sudden end of the slave trade because you might find yourself with uh, the United States deciding to intervene in Cuba 
and helping the Cuban people to achieve its independence mm-hmm. or, or whatever narrative uh, they are going to use. But essentially, Spain losing control of the island and the, and the United States taking control of the island. And for the British, that's a real, real nightmare. That possibility sounds absolutely horrifying. So the Spanish are going to play with that. So they're going to say, you know, don't put too much pressure on us because maybe the United States will do something about this. So it's it, it's a very complicated period to um, kind of like summarize in, in one single narrative because there is a lot of things happening in the 40s and in the 50s that I explain in the book in greater detail. But that's kind of like the general the general picture. Mm-hmm. And, and then what you have is... Uh, that all that kind of like balanced international situation in which nobody's ready to make a significant move because they're all very worried of what's going to happen next, the American Civil War starts. And crucially, at the end of the American Civil War, with the victory of the North and the abolition of slavery, the idea of only Spain and Brazil, and Brazil had already almost stopped trading in slaves, only Cuba being the only single destination of enslaved people in the whole Atlantic world becomes completely uh, unsustainable. No mm-hmm. one believes that can happen. And that's when the Spanish authorities are forced to act and they are forced to kind of like claim some last minute agencies over the process. And what they do is they say, if we want to preserve the institution of slavery, we need to make this discussion a national of national sovereignty, a national, a, a matter of of national independence, a, a domestic issue. So what they do is they say, okay, let's let's put an end to the slave trade and let's try to keep slavery for as long as we can. But what is interesting and it's something that I kind of like like to emphasize because it was very important to me to reflect that in the book in the book, is that the end of the slave trade was not certain, even. In the mid 1860s, it was it was it's difficult to say if anyone truly believed that the end of the slave trade in Cuba was imminent. There was a general idea that it, things were getting really tough. It's also important to consider that if the South had won the war in the United States, the idea of having this superpower not only promoting the slavery but actually making it a fundamental part of their victory of after the war could have really changed the whole picture. Mm-hmm. The United the, Britain would have felt completely isolated in its international campaigns against the slave trade, and the Cuban planters will have felt vindicated. The idea that you know the South of the United States is the example to follow, and I think that for a lot of Spanish politicians in the early 1860s and mid 1860s. That possibility was not, you know, difficult to imagine. Uh, a victory of the South, even the possibility of reorganizing some kind of, impi- re, you know, reconquering some of the territories in 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 Latin America, that was in the in the head of a lot of Spanish politicians. So I think it's very important to emphasize that the end of the slave trade, although it happened quite suddenly, it was not certain. So. Just to conclude here, how does your account of the end of the slave trade in the Spanish Empire, and you've given us a brief overview here, and of course you go into much more detail in your book, how does it change the way that we think about this process? I think that my book brings 
Spanish voices into the conversation. I think that for a very long time this has been a story that has been told from outside of Spain and without Spanish voices. And hopefully this book, you know, explains not Spain as an anomaly, as very often the Anglophone historiography has portrayed Spain in, not just during the 19th century, but in many other periods of, of its history. Uh, not as an anomaly, but, but uh, a, a historical reality that responds to its own circumstances. So we cannot think of Spain through the lenses of the British Empire or through the lenses of the United States. We need to understand the political, economic, social, cultural characteristics of the Spanish 19th century to understand why Spain, a country with liberal institutions since the 1830s, failed to develop something similar to an anti-slavery movement like in other parts of Europe. So by bringing those Spanish voices, by considering the characteristics of the Spanish politics of the time, I think that this book kind of like provides a much more coherent narrative of what's going on and it, it avoids going into kind of like simplistic answers of like Spain was not uh, politically de developed or there was not enough cultural institutions or things like that that you very often read from outsiders to uh, Spanish history and who tend to think of Spain as what didn't happen. And I think that is very important that this book shifts that narrative and says like, well, things happen the way they happen because of the circumstances, the political characters, the ideas that were circulating there at the time. And we need to stop thinking of Spain as an anomaly and, and consider, you know, the role of Spain in the Central and South Atlantic as a fundamental player in understanding the Atlantic as a whole. Mm -hmm. So when we think of the Atlantic world, we need to think of Spanish voices, but we also need to think of West African voices. We need to think of Caribbean voices. And we need to write histories that are not only in English or in French. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the program, and I really appreciate you taking the time to share this fascinating story, and I think really uh, give us that more complex picture of um, the case of Spain in, in the Atlantic. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.